Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Uh, this morning we will be, we've been going through the book of Isaiah as a church. So this morning we are in chapter 32, chapter 32. So roughly the middle of the Bible. I was always gro- growing up, I always heard it was Psalms that you open up to and it's in the middle. But actually, I think it's, you know, it all depends on how you open it, but it's roughly Isaiah, I think. There is so much going on in the world that should not be. Think of the terrible things going on in the world that remind us that we're in a world that has gone wrong. Children getting bullied by other children. Young women sold by their own parents to become sex slaves in other countries. Judges whose job it is to uphold the law, betraying the law for a bribe. Simply put, it's not supposed to be this way. This is not how it's supposed to be. And so maybe, I don't know if you've done this, but have you ever tried to imagine a perfect society? A town or a city that is righteous in every way? Imagine a place that is actually good. Can you do it? Books, TV, movies have tried to imagine such a society. I want to mention two portrayals in popular culture. One is a slightly older movie uh, called Pleasantville. This is not an endorsement of the movie, but just an uh, opportunity to, to explore. Because the reality is, I don't bring up popular movies or TV shows just to try to be relevant or anything like that. Uh, The reality is that we engage with popular culture. And inside those movies and TV shows and books are these narrative ideas. And it gets into us without even realizing it, some opposite from the Bible types of ideas. So Pleasantville. I I, I can't go into all the details of the plot, but more or less two people find themselves in a supposedly perfect community. And at this point, the film is in black and white. And the, the community is perfect. So like firefighters, for example, they have nothing to do except get cats out of trees. Oh, to be a bored firefighter. 
And what's interesting in this movie is as sin enters into this community, then there begins to be color in the movie. It implies that a place that is good is boring or weird. Something is not right unless there is sin to color things. I think it's also a testimony to the fact that it's hard to imagine a good place. The second portrayal in, a pop, in popular culture is a comedy TV series that's more recent and you may have watched called The Good Place. It depicts someone who wakes up in the afterlife in The Good Place and others end up in The Bad Place. In this case, this woman is in the good place by mistake, which should tip you off to something as it's not quite that good, right? Um, she pretty quickly realizes that she does not belong in this good place. She does not belong there. The community is designed for everyone to flourish, to live life fully. And it's, a, it's designed for everyone to, to do this, but it only works if everyone is flourishing, if everyone is good, as they've intended to, been intended to be. Now, of course, this is a comedy, right? And so for a comedy to be funny, they have to, it, it doesn't, it's not purely an experiment to imagine a perfect place. I understand that. But it does tip us off to some understandings. And in this particular situation, what becomes apparent is everyone in this good place actually doesn't belong there. And part of it is in popular culture, the only way they can evaluate whether you in fact belong or don't belong is superficial goodness, good acts, good deeds. But it does not actually reflect where the heart is. So both of these portrayals struggle to imagine a truly good place. Both imply that a truly good place is weird and boring. But this can't be true. Something that is truly good can't be bad, right? At least that's how logic works in my mind. Such a place can exist, but we need the resources to imagine it. And I believe Isaiah helps us with that. So I'm going to read the chapter. I'm going to read all the way through it, and then we'll walk through it in three parts. Isaiah 32, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed 
and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the cravings of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil, his plans wicked, his, he plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, on, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women, who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder. You, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will be become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places, and it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to walk through this in three parts. A good king, a wayward people, a spiritual peace. Verses 1 through 8 announce a good king. This is hard to for us to grasp, as we already talked about. We long for a good king and the good kingdom that comes with it, but it is so far from us that it strains our imagination to think of it. No earthly kingdom in the history of the world has ever been good, not even close. Even if we try to think of the golden era in any country's history, one can just as quickly think of acts of moral failure, oppression, and exploitation that came at the same time. Israel is no exception. Between the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom, 
It's a long list of kings and a queen who were not good leaders. So three examples. King Jehoram killed his brothers so that there was no competition for the throne. Uh, there's a word for this. My boys know it because I teach them random things. Fratricide, to kill your own brother. It's what Cain did to Abel. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to kill your own brother just to get some kind of temporal earthly power. King Ahaz, who is featured in Isaiah, he deliberately destroyed the holy objects in the temple and set up idols across the land. Equally evil act. So that women do not feel left out, Queen Athalia, who's just as cruel as the men, having the entire royal family killed, which included her own grandchildren. Do not be a grandma like that. But what about the good ones? King David, one who was called a man after God's own heart. Well, King David pursued the wife of another man in what can only be understood as a non-consensual act on her part. And then he covered up this sin by having her husband killed off in battle. Not a good track record. All of this is to say that when we come across passages in the Bible that describe a good kingdom, we have a hard time understanding it, imagining it. Verse 1 lands with big news of the righteous king. Israel has not experienced a truly righteous ruler. Neither have we and any of the countries represented here. Therefore, this passage lists a few characteristics of what it means to have a good king. So I'll just run through a list. Verse two, it means safety from danger. Even though natural disasters can strike anyone, we know that it is the poor who are the most vulnerable and a righteous or a good king would amend them. Verse three, we, we will see and hear rightly. We will embrace the truth of God's goodness. This is a contrast. If you remember back to Isaiah chapter six, when it's the calling of the prophet Isaiah, and he's told the people are not going to hear you and they're not going to see what you are saying. And here it's flipped. They are hearing. They are perceiving. Verse four, moreover, we will long for good truth to be what, our, what we ground our lives on. Again, there's a contrast to just recently, chapter 30, verse 10, where the people didn't want to hear truth, but wanted to hear smooth things instead. Verse five, people will be seen as they really are. 
verse six, the most important truth we can share is about the Lord God. Error and hunger have no place under the good king. Verse seven, those who cheat, lie, deceive, and exploit others will be exposed and brought to justice. Verse eight, those who are seeking first righteousness will be able to do so. We live in a world that even for the most earnest person trying to live rightly, the evil all around us makes it really difficult to do so. So here's one example. My mother-in-law has been discipling a, a woman in a nearby nation. It's a long distance discipleship. And this woman is relatively young in her faith, has not really, hadn't really been discipled, um, and is, uh, was a sharp legal student and was given an opportunity to become a judge. <clears throat> what an opportunity, right? A believer to be judge in a country where justice has not always been common as we would like, she can ensure justice, right? She can help the nation turn the page on corruption that cripples the nation. Fellow believers in the same nation advised her not to take the posting, that she could not carry out the duties of judge and maintain her moral integrity. She took the posting and soon discovered that they were right. She could not carry out her duties as judge and maintain her integrity. Under the good king, she would no longer have this problem. The good king would establish a society where good could prevail. It would not face roadblocks, obstacles. Righteousness could roam freely. Secondly, a wayward people. This next section may seem a bit confusing. It went from speaking of this transformed kingdom because of the good king, and now it drops back. We've gone through a series of warning passages in chapters 28 to 31, and it seems to be another one of those warning passages warning about the problems that Isaiah sees in his day. In this case, he addresses women specifically. Why? We're not told in the text. But we do know this. Isaiah has been warning people. He's been warning them again and again, and particularly He's been warning the leaders of Israel, who were all men. The warning was simply this, that they need to put God first, that they need to trust God rather than men or their own plans. So we might venture to guess that the women are now being addressed because the men have not responded. But this message is relevant for all of us. 
Isaiah is addressing those who are at ease, those who are complacent. I don't know about your spiritual walk. <clears throat> if you are a believer, I don't know that, I, I don't think most of us will just say, like, uh, get up one morning and say to yourself, today I will unfriend God, the creator of the universe. Most of us don't operate like that, right? Or we wouldn't dare do something like that intentionally. More often, we have a tendency to drift. Our days begin busy. And they typically stay busy. We're flooded with messages and chats and things to do. Our phone is constantly buzzing. People are constantly coming at us from different directions. Even when we have time, our minds are so filled with chatter that we tune God out. Often we don't intend to do so. We don't do this intentionally, but we just get carried away with everything happening. We are too easily at ease. If we don't watch out, we will become complacent. This is a warning for you and I. What will you do to get back on track spiritually? Can you will yourself into being more spiritual? Alarm clocks and accountability groups are not enough to get you back on track spiritually. Even if there is a good king, if our hearts are complacent, there will not be change. If we treat the king with apathy, we, are, we reveal that we do not belong there. We are devoted to something else that rules us. So thirdly, a spiritual peace. We're going to look at the final uh, section in this chapter, verses 15 to 20. Verse 15 breaks forth with the foretelling of something remarkable. The Spirit will be poured out on the people of God. This is not just any spirit. This is from on high. This is divine. When God enters our world, we see the dawning of change. We see the first light of transformation. Going back to the, the beginning when we talked about imagining a good place, two things are needed for thinking about, uh, for making a good place. We need a good king. We need the rightful king on the throne. God has given us governments today as an act of, of God's common grace. Without government, 
the world would be in utter chaos. But we also know that the governments we have are not like the good king. They are susceptible to the same sin, same temptations, same corrupted hearts that the rest of us are. That is why we need the good king. Jesus came as the rightful king. This is why we need the good king. Jesus is the king who will bring about a truly good place. But we still have a problem. It's a problem that we do not belong. We are not fit for the good place. In other words, we need a good king, but we also need transformation. We also need change from within. Jesus came not only to be our king, but to be our savior. The truth is, in both Pleasantville and the good place, those who are labeled good are not actually good. It's an imposter good. It's a fake good. Good acts, but not a changed heart. That is why we need a savior. Jesus came to be king, but not like any other king. He gave his life, taking our sin, our corruption, our apathy, our complacency, our imposter good works. He took all of that to the cross where he died so that we no longer carry the burden of sin or the death sentence that comes with it. We cannot have Jesus as king if we do not first take him as savior. It's important to hear. I'm going to say it again. We cannot have Jesus as king if we do not first take him as our savior. To acknowledge him as king, we must acknowledge that we need saving. If you have not done this, please come talk to me afterwards or talk to someone that you know follows Christ. So you might be wondering, at least I would be, how this links to this passage about the Spirit. And here is where we get to see a glimpse of God's just intricate beauty. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We sang about it earlier. One God. One God who is, we know him as Father and Son and Spirit. Jesus, the Son, knew that we need help living rightly. Jesus died to save us, and he promised something else that the spirit of the living God would come upon us. What happens when the spirit descends on us? This passage tells us three things. This is not all, to, all there is to say about the Holy Spirit, but it is what this passage reveals to us. One, the spirit gives fruitfulness. Verse 15, when God is among us, it 
He does not leave us unchanged. We are given the resources for living better. Two, the Spirit moves people to live rightly. See verse 16. The Spirit helps us see right and wrong more clearly and prompts us to live rightly. And then thirdly, living rightly gives us peace. It's all connected, really. So verse 17. We still live in a corrupted world. And there are hard choices every day. The Spirit of God gives us a peace in a world where most lack peace. Earlier, uh, Bethany read from Galatians chapter 5. There's a link between Isaiah 32 and, and Galatians 5, I believe. I'm going to read um, just part of what, what she read earlier. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. When we embrace Jesus as Lord, we also invite the Holy Spirit to live in us. And, and I, I, this is amazing beyond words. But only if we walk by the Spirit, if we allow God to work within us. He gives you fruit of the Spirit, which we just read off. Let the Spirit who moves in you to move you to live rightly. And as the Spirit dwells within you, and as you walk in the Spirit, He will give you peace. Friends, will you embrace Jesus and walk in the Spirit?